Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Ready for happiness part three? <laughs> <laughs> When we left off last, (laughs) I'll just give a a little bit of a review of what I've been uh, sharing, starting off with um, mindfulness itself as as a practice that develops all the wholesome qualities and weakens all the uh, unwholesome qualities and is the basic tool to awaken joy and happiness. Uh, And then also that first evening talking about the wise effort, particularly with regard to uh, developing and increasing wholesome states. I hope you've been experimenting with being a bit more present for wholesome states when they arise. Uh, And then uh, talking last time, uh, following up from the first talk on intention and the intention to to be happy by first ascertaining where true happiness lies and facing in that direction and having your practice be an unfolding of greater and greater development uh, in, of that vision of leading towards more wholesomeness and, and health and wholeness and happiness. And part of that being opening to the suffering that we encounter as a path to freedom. And that the, the space of gratitude allows us to hold the difficult stuff, as um, Sylvia was so beautifully talking about last night, having the, the spaciousness uh, that can be with everything. Uh, tonight I want to um, go a bit more deeply into the, um, the second foundation of mindfulness uh, as a way to um, develop happiness. And this talk um, I call Transforming Suffering into Happiness which sounds like a pretty good alchemical formula. And this is the way I see the Buddha's gift of practice and of mindfulness, that this is what we're doing. We are directly transforming suffering into happiness because we can choose in any moment whether we are leading down the road of more pain and sorrow or more joy and wholeness because as you probably remember uh, that mindfulness of feeling that vedna of pleasant unpleasant and neutral is where we can choose how to relate to the moment it's happening in every moment and if we are not clear if we are acting from confusion and old habits, when there's pleasantness, we grasp. When there's unpleasantness, we push away. 
And when there's neutrality, generally we become confused and either space out or in a diluted way take our experience to be our uh, to be who we are. Those three, greed, hatred, and delusion, are the causes of all suffering. And the opposite alternative, when there is clarity and there's a pleasant moment, instead of grasping, then there is non-grasping, non-greed, non-attachment, which is different from from um, letting go or pushing away, because appreciating, appreciating the good stuff, as we said in being mindful of wholesome states, this is not unskillful, this is very skillful. There's a difference between appreciating the moment and grasping, trying to hold on to it, trying to keep, keep it here or go for more. So there's non-grasping, non-greed, when there's something unpleasant, instead of pushing away, there's a, a willingness to open to it, non-aversion or non-hatred. And when there's a neutral moment, there's clarity that sees what's happening, non-delusion. These three, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, are the cause of all happiness, karmically speaking. Or more positively put, non-greed is... Um, an ability to uh, open up, not hold on, let go, and in its full flowering, the generosity of heart. Non-hatred is kindness of heart, loving kindness, and non-delusion is clarity or wisdom. And we have this choice in every single moment. If we don't see clearly, then those moments build on each other and uh, we are, are blind to the habits that we create. As Sally, remember, mentioned that, that piece, our thoughts become the words, words become the deeds, deeds become habits, habits harden into character. And I just, what I like to do is give a, a concrete example of how this works so it kind of um, heightens ups the ante, so to speak. If you reflect on something unskillful that you've done, did we do this here in this talk? Just reflect on something unskillful that you've done somewhere in your distant past, in your, somewhere in your lifetime, or maybe today. You, know. <laughs> you might actually pick something that... Um, that there was some kind of interaction, so maybe before the retreat. Okay. We won't keep you here for the whole time, don't worry about it. But just reflect as you're in the middle of that, that action, either saying something or doing something that feel, felt a little bit off. How did it feel? Probably not so good. Maybe it felt good in the moment, but the moment following probably didn't feel so good. And the energy that would come back to you if there was an interaction, probably people, the person didn't say, oh, thank you very much for that gift or that, <laughs> or that feedback. It comes back to you. Right? 
the likelihood that you would repeat that pattern increases because you're practicing it. And when you think about it, when you just recalled it now, it might be a little bit of a cringe, like, ooh, yeah, I did do that. So in that one moment, there were four ways that you created some suffering. In the moment, the energy that comes back, the likelihood of it repeating as it becomes more reinforced, and as you reflect back on it. So that little seed has a potent result. Now, we won't leave you here. Think of something really good that you've done in your life. Come on, you can come up with something. Right? <laughs> Just uh, It could be a random act of kindness where you were there for somebody who was having a hard time. And just reflect on that. Oh, yeah, I did that. That was kind of nice. And as you recall it, think of how it felt in the moment. Probably felt pretty good. How the energy is that comes back to you. That person is probably really grateful or appreciative. You feel that connection. The likelihood of that occurring again is greater because you've practiced it. And when you just thought about it, didn't it feel good? So every moment you're planting seeds that bear fruit in many, many ways. So this transforming suffering into happiness is really about being present and seeing that we can choose to act either with greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, ignorance, same three, or non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or a kind, a generous heart, or a kind heart, or uh, a wise heart. So I want to go through each of these in a little bit more detail and see that this is exactly what we're practicing these days, every single moment that you're mindful, you're going through this alchemical transformation. First, as far as grasping greed versus non-greed. And it can be about anything. It can be about a sweet meditation experience. We've talked about that before. It can be about a pleasant moment that you want to capture. Uh, there was this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I, that I love, that I often share. The, the first frame is Calvin saying, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. <laughs> Third frame, so I'm no longer happy, content. Mm, my day is ruined. And then the last frame, I should have quit thinking while I was ahead. <laughs> it's just one thought, ooh, wouldn't that be nice? How do I keep this here? And from that pleasant moment, it's become painful. Because we, we're not satisfied with what's here. I've shared the story, a number of you have heard, so bear with me. Uh, but it just so um, 
demonstrates the predicament that we're in of my son, uh, Adam, who's now 19, when he was two, two and a half. Did I tell that story this time? Where he was, we were down in Yucca Valley in, uh, in the staff room, and there was this bowl of strawberries, luscious strawberries, big organic strawberries, which he loved. Still like strawberries. And he was just kind of putting them in, you know, one after another, just red juice all over the place. And I wanted to teach him to eat mindfully. <laughs> Naive, though I was, right? And I just, Adam, just, just eat, eat what you got in your mouth, you know. And I held the, the bowl out of his reach, you know. He would have none of it. And in this one vivid moment that's indelible in my mind, this big, luscious, huge strawberry in his mouth, as he's going, strawberry! <laughs> that's our predicament. You can't even appreciate what's here when you're wanting more. And it's painful. So the end of that suffering is to let go of the more and be with what's here right now. Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you'll have complete freedom. And you're troubles with the world will come to an end. It's all about this ability to let go. What that means is there has to be a sense of sufficiency, of wholeness, in just that what we have is enough, that this moment is enough. And that's one of the beauties of mindfulness when you're completely collected and seeing, oh, I have everything I need in this moment. There's nothing that you need to add or take away to make it a better moment when you're truly mindful. But we can often get into this sense of not enough. I came across this study. I can find it. Oh, yeah. Study uh, done in uh, 1995. Psychological study. People who have the most are only as likely to be happy as those who have the least. People who like what they have, however, are twice as likely to be happy as those who actually have the most. Did you follow that? Most, least, it's about the same. But if you like what you have, if you're content with what you have, you're twice, I don't know how they measured it, but that's what it says in the study, uh, you're twice as likely for a sense of happiness and satisfaction. And out of that sense of sufficiency, there is an abundance that makes you delight in sharing. Because sharing becomes the currency of our, our love. You know, think of a time where you shared something with somebody that you really, you really 
we're enjoying. You ever have an ice cream cone and you say, oh, you got to try this. You know, they might say, no, 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 I'm on the diet. Oh, come on, you got to try it. You know? Because it feels good to share, doesn't it? As long as they don't take too big a bite. But <laughs> Think of something that somebody gave you. Okay, might think right now, something in your, in your house or something that you really, that, that's dear to you, that you were given as a gift. Now, when you think about that, isn't it nice to feel that connection? That connection you have with that person? Oh, yeah. It's not that, oh, this gift is the finest, you know, Ming dynasty. And it's like, oh, here's the love that that person gave me, just manifest in this. And it's the same way when we give to others. That's how we just express our connection and our caring. This quality of generosity is, it's the first paramita, the first perfection. Even before mindfulness or virtuous conduct, the Buddha taught about the power of giving, that it's so powerful and such a a great source of happiness that it brings us greater joy than holding on to what we have. I wanted to share this article that just uh, that was in uh, the paper a couple of days ago as you might or might not know the um, the Olympics the Winter Olympics are happening right now okay. <laughs> now instead of you say oh my god I've only seen once on my day off so don't don't feel like you know you've gotten ahead but it was it was it, it was this article in the paper okay and it's really about this spirit of giving. It's, it's, very, it's, it's very touching. About this um, uh, ice uh, speed skater who won the gold medal uh, in his first race, and then he won the silver medal in his second race a couple of days ago. And the first race, he gave his gold medal... Uh, over to uh, charity, which uh, and it's worth twenty five oh twenty five thousand dollars bonus money, but he had a very clear thing that he wanted to do, and this is what happened. Second time around, Joey Cheek didn't beg attention, beg for attention, or throw down a challenge. He won a silver medal, then quite casually gave his money away, and that's another fifteen thousand dollars for right to play. The American long track speed, speed skater said. Right to Play, a nonprofit organization that establishes sports programs for children in, in impoverished countries, had received roughly $300,000 in additional donations after Cheek handed over the $25,000 bonus money from his 500-meter gold medal on Monday night. His corporate sponsors, challenged by Cheek to match his support, had delivered $30,000 from Nike, Jet Set, $25,000, blah, blah, blah. It just keeps on going. And then a whole lot of people uh, spontaneously called in, pouring in um, donations for this donation, for this uh, charity. I don't know why more people don't do it, Cheek said. It, I feel so great right now, and I'm so happy. I think when I look back, I'm going to be proud of, the, uh, of this than I am of winning a gold medal. 
Cheek's involvement in Right to Play won't end with a donation. For a week in April, he'll join an HIV awareness tour of the group's project sites in Zambia. Uh, and then we'll speak at a global conference on HIV and AIDS in Toronto this August. And he was inspired by another Olympian, four-time gold medalist, Johan Olav Kass, who took over this Right to Play uh, organization and very much inspired him. And nobody knew that he was going to do this before the Olympics. Nobody knew. I'll just read a little bit more because it's so cool. He says, uh, after he won the silver medal, Koss, uh, Cheek and Koss uh, and other Right to Play representatives, um, the two said virtually the same thing about their instincts. When they competed, they felt lucky, not for winning, for being able to do something they loved. We're so fortunate to be where we're from. And, you know, it's just a twist of fate. If you're born in Zambia or you're born in Darfur, you could have the same skills, the same genetic makeup, same everything, and you're just struggling to survive. To put his donation in perspective, Cheek said he made just under $100,000 in his best season as a skater right after he won the bronze medal in Salt Lake. He drives an, an S, a Tahoe SUV um, that the Olympic sponsor gave him after those Olympics. He's not rich. He just feels that way. He gave away $40,000 because that was his Olympic dream. To share his good fortune, he, he'll know he really struck gold if four years from now, as another group of Olympians gathers in Vancouver, the children of Darfur are safe and happily kicking soccer balls he bought for them. And it just touches us, doesn't it? When you look back on the things that really have brought you joy, is it the stuff that you got? Probably it's a whole lot more the stuff that you gave or the energy that you gave. Fritz Perls said, I just came across this line, I don't want to be saved, I want to be spent. Now, you can't give more than, you, than is healthy for you, so it's not to just give away everything and not take care of yourself, but coming from that place of abundance, that's a, um, one of the greatest joys there is. And the Buddha said, actually, in one, one of my favorite lines of his discourse, he says, as you're in the middle of an act of, of generosity, he says, this is a very good thing. He says, think Oh, I'm being generous. He says, as you reflect on that, oh, I'm being generous, one gains inspiration in the meaning. One, it gladdens the heart. One gains inspiration in the Dharma. He said, that's a really good thing to do. It's this noticing the wholesome. He's not saying, oh, aren't I a generous person? But he's saying, oh, feel how good it is. Feel how good it feels. Your practice here can be done in that same spirit of generosity. You know, on retreat, as you make your own sincere commitment, you are inspiring everybody around. As you have a commitment to awaken your heart as much as possible, then that's a gift that you bring back to you, with you to everybody you meet.
as you go through your yogi job or as you um, take care around silence, as you contribute to the community in that spirit. What a gift that we all bring to each other. Nyosho Kempo, who I, I read from, I think, earlier in the retreat, he said, we're not practicing for ourselves alone since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation of benefiting others, bodhicitta. He says, the very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever else we do might, be, might do is secondary to that. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. It gives a whole other meaning to practice, to do it with that spirit of generosity. And every single moment that you're mindful, that you're not grasping at pleasant experience, trying to keep it here, hold on to it, you are learning in a very direct way to let go. Oh yeah, oh how wonderful this feels. And then, ah, it's gone. It's like this. And now there's this moment. So it very directly cultivates this generous heart, this ability to let go. Non-greed, or generosity. Non-aversion, or, or non-hatred, or more positively put, loving-kindness. In every moment that we're here with the, the unpleasant and don't shrink away from it or try to bargain or somehow fix, make a project of getting rid of what is challenging, we are learning to open up and say, yes, and this too, this too is okay. And it not only gives us a strength and a courage and a confidence, but it is seeing where real happiness lies. Because it doesn't lie in contraction. And it doesn't lie in complaining. That's the beautiful thing. You can choose in every moment. Uh, Be Here Now is one of the my Bibles, the, the, the turning point book in my life by Ram Dass. Probably a few other people could say the same if you're my age and into the Dharma and got into it a while ago. And there's this one page on uh, Be Here Now that I was thinking of as I was getting my thoughts together where it says, do you do your life from unk or do you do it from, ah, I don't know if it translates in the, you had to kind of see the very trippy drawings in there. Do you, but do you do you like, ah, oh, or, oh, 
a, a number of years ago. <laughs> a number of years ago, uh, somebody who was sitting on, uh, I don't know if it was a February retreat, it might have been a, a May retreat here. It's great. I got this really great uh, teaching around this. This, um, this woman, she said, you know, I just spend my, I see, I spend my whole day and I think my whole life whining. And I'm tired of it. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, oh, it's like um, the bell rings and I, and I notice myself saying, oh, now I have to walk. You know? And then you do the walking and then the bell rings. Oh, now I have to go back and sit. You know? Oh, now I have to do my job. Now I have to, you know, whatever it was. Now I have to go to the bathroom. And she said, I'm really tired of it. And we thought for a moment and we came up with another strategy. We said, what if you just play a little game with yourself? The bell rings. Oh, now I get to walk. Bell rings. Now I get to sit. Now I get to go to the bathroom. <laughs> now I get to... Well, it completely turned her around. And I've known this woman o- over time. And it's like it's been like a reorienting to her life. Oh, now I get to do this. Just try it if you find yourself in that kind of whiny, complaining mind. Because you've got two choices. It's going to happen. You can either go kicking and screaming or say, oh, okay, now there's this one. Now I get to do this. In fact, I want to share with you um, a really profound turnaround that had a great effect on many people. This is from the book Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman, I I don't know if I mentioned him last time, he's the father of the positive psychology movement, which he's also the president of the American Psychological Association. That's big now these days, right? And this is how he turned his, his career in this direction. He said, um, I realized, well, the turning point moment was when I was weeding in my garden with my five-year-old daughter, daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm actually not very good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing and singing. Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her, and she walked away. Within a few minutes, she was back, saying, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki? Daddy... Do you remember before my fifth birthday, from when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done, 
And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. (laughs) This was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. And that was the birth of the positive psychology movement. We can choose... We can choose in any moment. That's the gift. We can transform our suffering into happiness. And this choosing non-aversion, this choosing a friendliness with the moment, this choosing an opening to the moment, is something that's not for other people. It's for us. And we can learn in every single moment. It starts, this kindness, as probably you suspect or have seen, with ourselves. Because if we are beating ourselves up, it's very hard to choose kindness and love with the rest of the world. We might want to, or think, yes, I'm, I'm being a very you know disciplined person, and I'll be kind to... Others, because I want to be, but I'll try not to beat myself up so hard. You know, that, that won't quite do it. But if you get in touch with who you really are, then you tap into the wellspring of your goodness, and then everybody else gets to share it. So this metaphor self is really a key. And it's also one of the hardest things that we can do. I'd say 98% of the people who come through practice who are just representative of the general population go through a challenge of really loving themselves deeply. Not that you don't like yourself at all, but truly loving yourself is, is not so easy, but it can be done. And you probably have gotten glimpses of it. I want to share with you, uh, since I have the opportunity, just a little practice on metta for self that I found helpful for me. Uh, And it was when I was doing intensive metta a number of years ago, and doing doing it for self, you know, I was on myself for about a week or so, and was kind of getting at times feeling appreciative of who I was and, and uh, you know, a- able to take, to take it in to some extent. But one day I did a little flip of consciousness that really helped me connect. So I want to just share this with you. Just uh, if you would, it's a little guided meditation. Close your eyes and think of somebody who you have a lot of warm, easy loving feelings with. Not a complicated or as uncomplicated a relationship as is possible for you. Just somebody who you enjoy hanging out with and it's always 
kind of just fun and easy, or most of the time fun and easy, just bring them right here into your consciousness. And feel that special energy that you share when you're together, that you create together. And now, for a moment, just let your consciousness imagine what it's like to inhabit their reality and look through their eyes or imagine being them, seeing their friend who they enjoy so much. Just get a sense of why it is that their friend touches them so much the different qualities and aspects and why they love this person. Just kind of drink yourself in from this perspective. Just get who you really are. And now let your consciousness come back, move back right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected with what you saw from that other perspective. Still that same being that touches others. Who deserves to be happy. Who deserves loving kindness. Who's got a a lot of love to share with the world if, if it's allowed to shine. Okay. Okay. I'm curious, how many people got in touch with just for at least even a moment, a glimpse? Okay. And if you, if you did, then the jig is up You can't say, oh no, I'm not lovable, or I can't love myself. It's just a matter of watering that more and more, that seed of of beauty, of love. Which means you've got to be willing to open up to the whole show, not just the, the, the beautiful stuff, but everything that's part of who you are. And then that beauty has a real chance to shine through because otherwise you're stuffing stuff down and you close your heart in the process. Here's another Dana Falls poem. She's, she says, this is called Willingness. In the willingness to feel there is healing, in the choice not to closet, cast aside or deny experience, energy is freed and I dive deeper into life There may be maturity in choosing not to act, but there are no rewards for suppression and denial. To be fully alive is saying yes to the wide array of human feelings. When I soften, release, and breathe, I discover I'm more than what I think, feel, reason, or believe. So it means opening up to the whole show. So out of that kindness and friendliness towards ourselves, then we can have that with others. 
because then we see there's not so much of a, of a difference. And that separation as the barriers get lifted <coughs> is extraordinary, what we call genuine metta. Even then, though, there's a deeper kind of love. And that is beyond the interpersonal. And that is the love that we have for the truth. The love that we have for life and for the Dharma. Which is why you're here doing this. Even if you have forgotten at times... And it's sometimes easy to forget when we're doing Buddhist meditation practice. Oh yes, I'm just trying to be here in the moment. That this is a practice of opening up to love. We Now, in the last number of years, we've done metta and, and we've all agreed how important it is to add that component so that the, the, the vipassana, the mindfulness, is suffused with love. But to really connect with how much you, your heart is in this practice is, I think, something that um, sometimes can go below the radar, especially when we say, oh, I'm not a good enough meditator, or maybe I don't, you know, I, I don't have what it takes. And another story that I, I've, I've shared that some of you have heard that I, I want to share this was when I discovered how much I... My heart was into this practice. And it was uh, many years ago, it was 1975, when um, I was, um, uh, I wanted to join this class that Ram Das, the, the fellow who wrote Be Here Now, was leading in New York. And um, Joseph had told me about the this class, and there I was in New York kind of feeling very hibernating in, in the New York winter and feeling all alone. And he knew that I had come from a kind of devotional um, uh, lineage. And he said, well, go, go be with Ram Dass. You know, he, you'll get your, your heart fed there. So I went to have an interview with Ram Dass to see if it would be appropriate for me to join the class. This bhakti celebratory class where they're chanting Sri Ram J Ram and doing malas and stuff but I was already committed to Buddhist practice so he said well um, okay well let, let me let me ask you know we're do there's a lot of devotional stuff um, do you uh, do you love do you love Jesus and I said I like Jesus <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, but do you love Jesus? I said, well, you know, I, I really respect his, his teachings. I don't know if I could say I love Jesus like you're thinking. He said, oh, he said, okay. He said, well, um, do you love Krishna? I like Krishna. <laughs> you know, he's just the embodiment of celebration and just loving life. I don't know if I love Krishna. He said, well, do you love God? And I said, you know, Ramdas, um, I was brought up, I was raised in the Jewish tradition. And in my, the way I took it in, my idea of God was this very big, scary man with a beard and a book and a pen 
and saying, you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a lousy day. And I just, you know, I just couldn't, I don't quite get that. So when I, I hear the word God, I think in terms of the Dharma. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, for me, you know, the Dharma is like just the perfection of it all, just the mystery and, and that truth that's been so inspiring to me that, that really means everything to me. And then he said, well, do you love the Dharma? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah I love the Dharma. He said, you sure? I said, yeah, I love the Dharma. He said, well, have you ever told the Dharma you loved it? I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. Just say it. I'll, I'll say it with you. Go ahead, say it. What do you, I said, what do you mean? He said, just say, I love you, Dharma. I said, all right. I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he repeated. We went back and forth, oh, about three or four times until one time I just really felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started rolling down my face and he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) But it was a very important moment for me because I felt that heart connection to this practice, not just the wisdom element, Every one of us loves the Dharma. And the more we can stay in touch with whatever that means to us, the truth, awakening, goodness, the mystery, freedom, whatever that word means for you, staying connected with that experience is what keeps us practicing. So there's the love of the Dharma as well as the interpersonal love and the the love that we can have for ourselves. But even beyond loving the Dharma, there's something more profound, another kind of, another level of love. And that is the love that comes from emptiness. Because if it's me loving the Dharma, there's still a duality. Going beyond that, to the place of silence, to the place where there's no barriers, where there's no one loving the Dharma, where it just is. That's the deepest kind of love. That's the the facet of pure awareness that expresses itself as love. Ajahn Sumedho, I just came across this this evening, He said in one of his books, when the heart is free from illusion of self, then there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being. When we're free from the illusion of self, there arises naturally a loving quality in the pure joy of being. Every moment that we're mindful we are not cultivating aversion or ill will or hatred, and we are cultivating a friendliness, an openness with the moment that 
flowers as a loving heart. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Delusion is another way of saying confusion, which leads to suffering. And delusion is really the, the, the source of the greed and the hatred. We don't see clearly, and then we grasp at the pleasant or push away the unpleasant. Not seeing clearly one of three aspects of experience, the three characteristics or marks of experience, of existence. And that delusion happens when we take what is impermanent to be permanent. This is a problem. What is suffering, we take as a source of happiness. And what is essentially selfless to be some solid self, some separate sense of self that is identified with our experience. Non-delusion is seeing clearly through those confused perspectives. We see everything is impermanent we see that trying to hold on to that which is changing is suffering. And we see that this process of mind and body that we call me is also part of that impermanent flow. And there's nowhere in there that you can point to and say, that's me, that you are this process itself. And any time we begin to take ownership of experience, we are causing suffering for ourselves. You have a great meditation. Aha, I think I'm pretty good. Watch out. You have a lousy or unpleasant meditation. Oh, I'm no good. Watch out. You have a thought, any thought, good or bad, and you say, you know, oh no, if they could see who I really am, you know, you've just created a prison for yourself. Where did that thought come from? And Joseph has a very good instruction. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you know? <laughs> Which for all intents and purposes they are. You don't say, oh, let's have some doubt right now. You know? I could go for some rage. Okay, they just it just comes, or that story gets pressed, and there you are back in third grade. Or you have a pleasant thought, a very beautiful thought. If you say, "Hmm, hey, check it out," you know, it's pretty neat. You've just taken ownership of that thought, and that is painful. That is suffering. In the Third Zen Patriarch, uh, there's this line, to live in this realization, to live in the truth, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. You don't have to be perfect in order to be okay. In fact, it's just this process of causes and conditions unfolding. 
on one retreat, I, um, I had this experience where it was very, I was just kind of cruising and I was sitting for longer hours and uh, just my mind was, was pretty clear. And I thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. And there I was. And somebody came into the, into the hall who I had tremendous respect for. And uh, I had my eyes open because uh, I would do that from time to time. And, um, and she, gets, she sits in front of me. And after like 10 minutes, she's just you know, nodding off, you know, down and up. You know. And I'd been sitting there for quite some time and just thinking... Wow, the thought occurred to me, I know what that's like very well. And tomorrow, that could be me. And yesterday, it was me. So, I don't know how I got into this space, but it's amazing. It's pretty cool. And it's certainly not anything that I made happen. And in a moment, the whole room kind of like spun around in this dance. And instead of it being me and these other people, it was just these different energies and here was mindfulness and here was sleepiness and here was love and here was chaos and, here, and we could all be interchangeable parts and all were. It's just a room full of energy doing its thing, manifesting in different ways. It was tremendous relief. So, not to take ownership. When you don't take ownership, then it's all just happening through you. Then there's no problem at all. There's nothing that you have to fix. There's nothing that you have to um, take credit for. It's just all happening through you. Ajahn Sumedho calls, calls this, when you really see clearly and don't take, your, take self... It's a separate self, then what happens is what he calls the shining through of the divine. Now, when that happens, do you say, my pure awareness is better than your pure awareness? You know? My unconditional love is better than your unconditional love. It's absurd to think in those terms. It's just that you're not in the way and the mystery shines through you. That pure awareness is unobstructed. Came across one other thing from Sumedho. He says, uh, Our refuge then is this awareness. Resting in this conscious awareness is referred to as coming home or our real home. It is a place to rest, like a home. The idea of a home is a place where you belong, isn't it? You're no longer a foreigner or an alien. You begin to recognize through a sense of relief of just being home at last, of not being this stranger, this wanderer out in the wilderness. So it's coming back to our true home. And in every moment that you're mindful in every moment that you're clear and not taking ownership of experience, here you are again, or here it is again, manifesting as this form. So this is how we 
transform suffering into happiness. In the moment of mindfulness, changing greed, hatred, and delusion into non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And let's see. And it's something that is the most amazing miracle of all. So I'll close with um, one favorite passage from Shantideva that describes this amazing opportunity that we have. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin. Imagine that. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for a moment. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 22, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.